So recently, you know, it's kind of this interesting sensation and kind of some conversations keep kind of bubbling up and coming back. And lots of interesting things occur when you begin to see the world's opinion about something. Now, I just want to lean in this, this morning just to, before we read the scripture, just to talk about the fact that there's a prevailing sort of attitude in our culture that, that acts as though it can completely rewrite matters of fact. But it doesn't work like that. We don't get to rewrite it or to unravel what is truth and then rewrite it and try to compose it in our own opinion, right? It doesn't work like that. And I give you an example. I talk about this. I've been talking about this with the connect group that I've been filling in for. And we've been learning a lot of things together. And one of the things that I talk about is, is that years and years ago, something occurred where definitions started taking on new meanings. And I give you this word, and, and if I were to ask you to define it, you would probably populate in your head immediately what you think it means. But I want to give you some concrete things to think about. So the word is tolerance. Look at your neighbor and say tolerance. Tolerance is a word that means to disagree with restraint. Okay? So this is important for us. And all of a sudden, bumper stickers years and years ago started popping up, and it says tolerance, and it's all these different images of all these different world religions that are in there. And I was like, I don't think that this means what you think this means. If that word means what you think it means, and then there's another one that's coexist, and they, both of these images popped up on people's cars. You know, if it, tolerance is the word that you want to display there, what you mean is, is that every single one of these groups disagrees with each other one, and they all just don't do anything about it. They're restraining. And I'm like, that might be the right question or answer to the, to the deal of what does that mean. But let me help you for just a second. You, then you start to reshape it into coexist, and it means that we're redefining the expectation. See, tolerance doesn't mean acceptance. It means I don't agree with you, but I'm not doing anything about it. Anybody in here have children that they've tolerated quite a bit? Some of you have parents in here you've tolerated quite a bit. Whether you say things like, well, I don't agree with this, but I'm at the moment either out of energy to do anything about it or I refuse to, to launch into this. Well, that being said, when we come to the scriptures, we begin to see that Jesus is grappling with the very thing that I'm talking about when he begins to lean into his disciples in just a few short verses we'll read this morning. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. When you find Mark chapter 8, if you would look to verse number 27, Mark 8, 27. When you get there, if you would stand, like I said. We stand to give reverence to God. This is his word, and his word, let it be truth, and let everything else be a lie as far as I'm concerned. Verse 27 says this. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, saying to them, who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. Would you pray with me? 
Lord, we thank you that as we come to the passage, we are reminded that Jesus is both posing the question to us and asking it of us. That we might understand that our world sees him differently than we see him. Lord, I pray that when we look to you, we see you for who you are. Nothing more and nothing less. That we see exactly to the heartbeat of what you are. And that we understand it from a biblical perspective and not the redefined expectation of our friends or our coworkers, but instead we see it from your opinion because your opinion is the one that matters. We ask for this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. You know, I always think it's interesting. Something will happen in pop culture and something will pop up and there'll be some explanation about, you know, some crazy moment. You know, recently this barrage of, of social media type stuff and interest media, and you know there's a difference and we talk about this. Social media is where you connect with people that you know. Interest media is when you connect with things that you like. And there's a difference. So social media, you go to meet people. Interest media is where you're looking and uh, trying to find information. So we're going to say, what's the difference? Well, if you're on Facebook, that's social media. If you're on Pinterest, that's interest media. They overlap with knowing people, but you don't have to know people to look for things you're interested in, and you don't have to be interested in things to look for people you know. See the difference? Well, on interest media, there's just all these weird overlays that come up on songs and all these, these videos that are real popular right now. And one of the lines strikes me as is, is just bothersome because it's telling people that Jesus has said something. And I'm like, I have read the book. Jesus never said that. But enough people hear the song frequently enough, and all of a sudden they believe that it's true. That's a problem. You know the only way I know to battle that is? By reading the book, talking about the book, and making sure people know what's in the book. Amen? If you're taking your opinion from the world, you are in a, a very interesting spot. Point number one today's lesson, today's sermon, is the world has very pointed opinions about Jesus. Did you know that if you ask people on the street, and, and I love this when this happens, you see somebody doing this and it's hilarious because we're bad at all manner of, of school-age knowledge. And people will ask people historical questions about, you know, or even geographical questions or, or simple, simple things that people should know. And they'll say things like, you know, can you point at, and they'll give them a state, you know, ask them to point at the state. And they can't find it. Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, people are like, I don't, don't, don't ask me, Brother Ben. And some of you are like, you know, my wife will tell you that, you know, if you ask her ge geographical questions, and so somebody asked me this morning, they're like, where's Honduras? I was like, we've been talking about Honduras for this long, and you don't know where it is. There's a map in the, in the lobby for those of you that need to take a look. Some of you could pull your smartphone out. Please don't do it now, but, and you can look up Honduras and find it. It helps you to know where your prayers are headed to. But these are the same people that don't know where Montana is that are telling you something about Jesus. I want to ask you this question. Should you trust them? I mean, these are the same people that, I mean, let's be fair. They became professors of theology by just reading social media. instead of this book. You say, what do you mean? Well, I'll ask you this question. When somebody comes to me and they give me something that's popular, but it's not accurate, 
I'll begin to ask them questions about it. And this is a practice that you should begin. If somebody has this foundational truth about any matter whatsoever, ask them deeper questions about it. Find out where they learned that from. And what will happen is, is that you'll find that they're just repeating something they've already heard. You say, well, where did they learn that from? And they can't give you a credible train of thought back to where it comes from. You begin to realize that there are lots of questions out there in the world. You know, this is a reason why when you were growing up, you were told that when you wrote papers in high school that you were supposed to cite your sources, you were supposed to reference them, and it's why now teachers battle all the time to tell students to not just take it for granted when they find it on the Internet. But what is the first thing we do when we have a question about something? We just Google it, and then we trust it. That's a problem. I remember walking into a church and realizing that the source material of one of the te people who were teaching some of the teenagers, and it's not here, but... Was, was the History Channel and some random handbook that they had gotten. I'm, I think something to the equivalent of Jesus for Dummies or something. And I'm like, there are better source materials. Number one, the Bible. You want to know what I think about the History Channel? I don't think about the History Channel because I watched it during the Easter season and I knew right away that they were dead wrong about Jesus on so many things that how could they be right about anything else? Some of you are in love with it, and you think, man, they said it on TV. It must be real. They're quoting professors from religious institutions I've never even heard of. And they're telling you things about Jesus, and you're like, wow. We look at the scriptures right here, and I want you to see it with me. Jesus and his disciples were just, they were out. They're going from place to place, and on the road, he, he poses them a question, and he needs them to understand that the world does not see him accurately. He says it very plainly. He says, who do men say that I am? And the question is, it is reverberating throughout all of history because men have bad opinions of Jesus and they don't even know who he really is. And immediately the response, the disciples are like, they have opinions about you. One of them says that you're John the Baptist, which I think is phenomenal because John was a contemporary of Jesus, meaning he lived at the same time as Jesus. So people are that confused about who Jesus is, they think he's another person altogether that's living or was living during the same time as Jesus. And you begin to say, can you trust the world around you? Should you is a better question. And I would suggest that I've just become, and I, and I know I talked about this last week, that we have just gotten to a position where we have become skeptical of everything. Did you know that there are over, I mean, a ridiculous number, and just for your mind's eye, maybe I'll do it backwards instead of from the big to the little. Do I have any readers in the room that love to read? I know the internet is kind of killing reading, but it shouldn't be. Some people love to read, right? So let me ask you this question. Can you read a book a week? Some people in here could read a book a week. No problem. My sister's a voracious reader. She's in the room, by the way. I used to just be in awe of her because I'm an arduously slow reader. And she would read a book a week, or a book a couple of days. A short little book that we used to get when we were in high school, she would read some of those just in the afternoon, and I was like, I hate you. If I sat down in front of that, I'd be here for three or four, five, six weeks. I remember going to school and putting my head in my hands when I got to seminary, and it was like I expected to read 1,000 pages per class per semester, and I was like, oh, no. And my wife will tell you, I became no fun, Ben. I was just... 
man, I'd come home from work and I would just lay on my bed and read. And if I wasn't there, I'd feel guilty because I wasn't reading. I'd sit in between classes and read. I just read all the time, and, I, and I've lost most of it. I, I hate that. I feel that way. But and sometimes things will pop up, and I'm like, man, I do remember more than I think. But if you read a book a week, that's 52 books this year. Let's say you took a couple off, just a couple weeks off. You're on vacation. Maybe you read more on vacation. Maybe you read less. Let's say you did that for 10 years. That's 500 books. Look at your neighbor and say, 500 books is a lot of books. Let's say you did this for four decades, for 40 years. That's 2,000 books. That's a lot of books, guys. 40 years of reading. So if you started in your 20s and you just for 40 years until you were 60 just reading books, you'd have a couple thousand books under your belt. You'd feel pretty accomplished, amen? There are over 2 million at the time that I learned this. There were over 2 million books in the Library of Congress. Unique books, not including magazines, articles, or other publications. You need to pick wisely what you read. And you need to look to the source material on the best stuff. Consider evaluating what a book is before you waste your time on it. Because you don't have enough time to gather enough information to get all the wisdom there is to get. And you sure, you sure know that the world is undereducated when it comes to this book and about Jesus, when the History Channel can't get anything right about him. And Jesus asked the question of his disciples. He says, who do men say that I am? And they're like, man, he is. And they want to say that he's like a prophet that has died. Been caught up to glory. Been just old aged out. And you're like, he came back. I mean, is that more marvelous to you that they think that he's a resurrected prophet? Or that they've confused him altogether for another man? And Jesus is like, do you see now the problem? The world stinks poorly of me. Because I will tell you that to say that Jesus is anything but who he is, is to demote him. Do you hear what I just said? All the time, I feel like that my Savior is being insulted all the time in the scriptures by the world around him. Describing him as Beelzebub, describing him as, as, as being someone who, who, would, who would hope for your death and destruction instead of for your salvation. As being a prophet, that is a huge demotion. And yet that's the problem is, is that people are like, that would be noble, that would be good. And oftentimes what happens is that people will say things like, well, Jesus, Jesus was a great teacher. Jesus was, man, he was one of the best. Jesus was a miracle worker. Jesus was, and I was like, no, Jesus Christ is the son of God. He is the salvation of the world. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And to say that he's anything besides that is to demote him, and we won't do that here. Because then he turns immediately and he says to them, before we do that, point number two. Your opinion of Jesus shouldn't be based on popular culture. Popular culture is that which is popular right now. 
I don't know about you, but oftentimes when we go to my parents' house, we'll find old stuff. Anybody have any old stuff in their house? How many of you have the green or the yellow or the orange Tupperware that doesn't ever wear out? It's a treasure. It's a find, by the way. And now it's kind of coming back. Some of you have left that wooden fork and spoon on the wall so long that if you take it down, the, the paint or the wallpaper is a different color. You know what I'm talking about. You find old stuff there, right? It was popular once upon a time. It's interesting to me the way you see things change in pop culture. The paint. The style. It's amazing how fast that stuff changes. Anybody ever see anything in, in attire or, or, or popular culture with regard to things that you wear? How many of you are thinking to yourself, man, I can't wait for those bell bottoms to come back, and they have, and you're like, what is happening? Hairstyles, the mullet's in, the mullet's out, the mullet's in, the mullet's, I don't want to keep up with it, right? Popular culture. It's gray this season, it's black next season, it's, I don't know, bright colors. Your youth minister told me on the way to the airport, he had a bad dream that when they got to Honduras, they were told they had to go home because they didn't have brightly colored enough clothing. And I thought that was hilarious. The problem is, is that pop culture is defining everything around you. But some things are timeless and they're ageless. And Jesus leans in and he begins to ask his disciples this question. And he says, who do you say that I am? And at that moment, a reality check, a gravity moment. See, it's real easy for Jesus to say, who do people describe me as? And for them to say, hey, other people say this. It's really easy to define what other people think, isn't it? But when you have to define it yourself, it becomes very different. It becomes very personal. It becomes very important. You know, there are numbers of ways that you could identify a person. And unfortunately, because of forensic science, we've learned all number of these things. And television will, will embellish the, the willingness of police in your community to be able to, to find out the remains of somebody is X, Y, or Z. Most of the time, things happen. People are like, well, there's not a budget to dissect all of these facts and details like there is on TV to look into all these things. But well, we have learned some of the ways we can identify a person. Once again, pop culture, right? But you realize that fingerprint was the gold standard for a lot of time. People would say, you have an, a, a unique fingerprint. It's not the gold standard, by the way, anymore. DNA test, that's probably the best one. If they have a bit of your DNA, they can see that you are who you are and there's only one of you. But did you know that you could identify somebody like 99.6% of the time by their ear? If you have a record of what their ear looked like, their ear is a unique marker on them. Your teeth? Sure, we have to identify people by their teeth. You want to know something that'll shock you? Your odor. It's completely biologically yours. People are like, I know, I live with him, you know. But you, between the oils on your skin, your hair, everything about you, your breath, all that stuff is you. And it's unique to you. And we try to slap the same 16 or 20 different products on it to make us all smell like everybody else. The way you walk, your gait of your step, distance that you travel at a normal pace, can be mapped out and you can search people and they have done this to tra watch traffic of people looking for suspects to say he walks like this and then look at it in a computer and you're like, how is that possible? You're so identifiably so unique that people have started trying to refabricate it. 
I remember having a camp and having a couple of, of guys come and lead worship, and they were twins. And they, they did the very thing where they confused their parents, and their parents were pretty good at it. But these guys were, were sincerely identical. I mean, I got to the point where I was looking at mole patterns on their face to try to pick these two apart. But there's a uniqueness about you, your, your eyeball. You know, your phone is, on most of you, is looking at you, trying to determine who you are. You hold a phone up to somebody, and it's like, yeah, that's them. There's something to be said about finding out the identity of something, someone. There's a, there's a fascination in the creation that each and every one of you is. There's something so unique, and Lou Gigolo did this beautiful talk where he, he introduces this moment where he talks about that in the womb, when God is creating you, that at the right moment that you had one eyelid, it was completely covered over, and then at the right moment, without explanation, without any cue from the body or anything else, that that, that, that process, that something just does it by design, will slice your eyelids open so that you have two instead of one. They can't explain it because we have a designer that's created each and every one of you superior to Rembrandt or Michelangelo. You are assisting chapel in and of yourself, and yet you have such a low opinion of yourself that you have a hard time seeing Jesus for who he is because he's so spectacular. And I think that all the while the devil makes us beat ourselves to death in our own opinion of ourselves so that we'll think a lot more about ourselves and a lot less about him. But he asks the question, but who do you say that I am? And he wants to know, do you think that he's worthy of the status that has been given to him by his birthright, by the, the nature of his being, by him being the once and future king, by understanding that he is the only one that can fix the problem? And the problem is, is the disciples, the disciples are caught in the world where they have heard everybody else's opinion and now they have to decide for themselves. And you need to decide for yourself. And if you see him as anything less than what the scripture sees him as, then you need to check the source material again. Peter responds. He answers and says to him, you are the Christ. And this is a, a turning point moment. There's actually two of these that appear in the, the gospel according to Mark, and it's probably the wrong time in the sermon for me to introduce this to you, but you'll understand it a little bit better why I've done it when I get done with it. Each gospel writer has a different setting. Okay? This is a little more academic for you, but I want you to really grab a hold of this. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell this picture, this story about who Jesus is. Each one of them, it's important for us to recognize the setting of the authorship all inspired by God's Holy Spirit to write the words they write, but man, they have a take on it that is unique to them, which is something that's to be said. And Matthew, obviously raised in a Hebrew society, a Hebrew setting, doesn't use the word God, not the way that the rest of the gospel writers do. You know, you start saying, okay, so tell me a little bit about Mark. And I could tell you a little bit. Luke and Mark are the most interesting, in my opinion, with regard to their authorship because Luke is the disciple of, of Peter. Not Peter, Paul, excuse me. And Mark is the disciple of Paul. It's really neat and interesting for us to understand this because whenever you see the pictures of Mark talking about Jesus and talking about Peter, oftentimes Mark is completely void. You don't find any of Peter's mishaps in his telling of the gospel. You know why that, I think that is? 
This is my opinion, by the way. It doesn't say this anywhere. I probably read it in a textbook, but I, I join opinions with the author here that says this. When you're teaching somebody about Jesus and you're teaching them to follow Jesus and you're discipling them, they can learn something from your mistakes, but you probably don't tell your negative stories quite the way that others will. We all like to look good before the people that we're helping, right? We don't want to lose credibility with them. And that's why when you get together with family and your family gets to see your family, that's why they tell all the fun stories about you and all the embarrassing things about your life and childhood that you're like, oh, come on, it wasn't that bad. And they're like, yes, it was. And if you don't have those experiences, man, you need to get around some family or some people who knew you when you were young because none of you are perfect. But Mark, Mark has no negative stories about Peter by comparison to the other Gospels. But man, he sure hits this picture right because it's a bookend. You see it here and you see it at the end. Right here, Jesus asks the question, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. At the end of the book, the centurion, after Jesus' death on the cross, says, surely this was the Son of God. And there's a bookend and there's these two moments and this declaration and the Bible is screaming it all the time about who Jesus is and we're missing it because we're too busy listening to the crowd and Jesus is inviting us to see him, which is point number three in your bulletin. He is inviting us to see him every single day. He is helping us to witness who he is and he is hoping that you'll get close enough to this book and study it long enough that you'll see him, that you'll come to church and worship with other people who see him and that you'll know that he is the Christ by the time that you've been through it and that when things get all out of control, you realize that when you are at your lost moment in life, when you have recognized it and you know that there's no other way in the whole world that you can be saved, that you could cry out to Jesus because he is indeed the Christ and he's not just some prophet and he's not just some good guy out there, that he's something more, that he will rescue you. And that is what we need to see when we look to the Bible is that Jesus will rescue us from our sin, that he will rescue us from our lostness, that he is something that could be held onto that is eternal and he is not something that is passing. And the problem is, is that the disciples are barely seeing it. They will see it more clearly, trust me. This title, by the way, a fantastic title, the Christ. Not a Christ, not a presupposition about some one in a million saviors, not some picture of all religions leading to the same place, the Christ, the one who was promised by the scriptures, the one who was declared for Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years that when it comes true, that it rings out and everybody can say, it happens, it happens, it happens, and it will happen. And so all the things that have been said about Jesus that have come true lead me to believe that everything he said that hasn't yet come true will. Isn't it powerful when you look to the Bible and the promises all throughout the Old Testament? Just bang, 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 like dominoes are just falling. And you're like, man, is this next one going to come true? They all have up till now. It's kind of like when you wake up in the morning, you say to yourself, you think the sun's going to rise today? Man, it sure has every day before now. Isn't there something to be said about consistency? There's this beautiful picture. There's this moment that happens next. And it's kind of the antithesis, the antithesis, if you will, the opposite of what we preach and proclaim at the current time because things have changed since then just a little. Verse 30 says, then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And there's this moment, you say, well, Brother Ben, why does he do that? It happens a couple of different times. I'm going to tell you plainly why that happens. If, if I understand the scriptures at all, then here's why that happens. Jesus has yet to die on the cross. 
He has yet to give his life as a sacrifice for many. He has yet to pay the price. And he's saying, until the bill is paid, you hold on to that. But when he got to that register and paid that bill for you, then he told us to tell everyone, go and make disciples, baptizing him in the name, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is a great commission. And he tells us to get out there and do the telling then. Up until this moment, he's like, you see clearly. Hold on to it. There's coming a time when I need you to carry it to the next leg of the journey. So I ask you this simple question this morning. Something for you to consider. Are you basing your opinion on Jesus purely on what popular culture has taught you? Or do you see him through the lens of Scripture, the only right measuring stick? Do you see him this way? And if so, do you realize that he could save you if you would but reach out to him? We're going to stand. And as we stand, I'm going to pray. So as you stand, would you bow your heads? Lord God, we thank you that when we come to this place, that you would be lifted high above it, that we would promote you as the Christ at every turn, that we would see you as the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and that we would know that you are the one who saves people, that there is no comparison to you, that there is no other way to heaven but through you. And I beg you, Lord, that this morning, that each and every one of us, that we would, with Peter, we would cry out that you are the Christ, that you are our hope in this world, our Savior. And I pray that if people that are present could not say that, that they would cry out to you today and ask you to rescue them. Lord, I ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.